Hello, and welcome to the 334 cast, where we discuss business agility, innovation, and the future of business. I'm your host, Stephen Voiles, and my guest today is Michael Graber. Michael is the founder and managing partner of the Southern Growth Studio. He's an author of two books and many more articles on innovation, insights, strategy, and transformation. He's a frequent speaker on these topics, and when he's not working, Michael likes to play music and write literature. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing really well. Honored to be here, Stephen. Thank you. Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks for, thanks for uh, coming and sharing some of your experience with us. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and maybe how you first got started in innovation? Sure. Um, of course. I took a very sideways path to having a career in the world of commerce and uh, it's something I swore I would never do. Right? I was, uh, for whatever reason, just liberal arts. I thought I was going to be an author and a poet and um, was publishing things and went to graduate school and have an MFA in creative writing and was teaching and was very happy doing that part of it. But then the university politics were abhorrent. I was getting called into getting people fired, hiring committees, and having the different schools of thought uh, were willing to really sabotage somebody's whole reputation and career just to have their way. And I had this revelation. It's like, wow, this is just over a school of poetry, you know, a certain approach to an art form. Why are people being so ugly? And so um, it, I saw that my career was very limited inside an organization that was so politically taken over like a university and uh, sought to find a culture that was much less politicized. And the deeper I searched, I found that you can find business cultures that have less politics than any other culture. So I made the leap did something I swore I would never do, started in publishing. I was an editor and a writer, and then became an information architect and usability engineer when that was still a thing. Um, then jumped into becoming a copywriter and creative director in advertising, then a director of marketing and brand strategy at a software firm. And I took all those lessons and saw what was driving value. So I really sought to get to the heart of what was driving value inside an organization. So I went from the words, to the words and images, to the pixels, to the information structure behind it, to the strategy driving it, into the nexus of value creation, which was innovation, right? So I launched my company in 2007. Okay, wow. Uh, yeah, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the politics within the organization that you were in and, and how, you know, sometimes you find it's even better in business. Um, can you talk a little bit about how politics and culture impact your ability to work with organizations and, and to drive innovation forward there? Right. That is the big piece, right? And we will not work inside a culture or with a client if it's highly politicized or if the culture is rigid and fixed, regardless of how much we need the money or how much we need the work, because if they have an inability to change, we don't want to be performing what's known as innovation theater or agile theater at any of right. our clients, right? It's frustrating for everyone. You get the staff real wound up, you get them lathered up and inspired. You teach them new methods, new mindsets of behavior. You get them wound up to where they're going 90 miles an hour and they crash into the wall of the orthodoxies of the company and the culture, which are not going to change. And that's just frustrating. 
So we like to have senior leadership sign off. We like to make sure they're on a change journey and a value journey, that they are open with being honest with themselves. Like the first step in AA, they have to admit there's a problem with the old paradigm. (laughs) And from that, um, they're able to seek change. Um, And then we find if we have senior leadership approval, that is more than 50% of the battle. We know that then there's hope that the culture can shift and change and that there's also some kind of slush fund away from the operating budget. Now when things get tough, it can go toward that change as well. Okay. Yeah, I often, you know, I've, I've got a, a background. I, I worked with a lot of software development teams early in my career. And I often, when I talk about the shift to working more on business agility, I talk about just that. You know, I, I felt like I was getting in a, uh, a place where I was teaching a bunch of people some new methods and then putting them in an environment where that would all get crushed. Um, so I can relate to that. It's very soul crushing to spend a lot of time with a group of people like that and then to see it not actually come to fruition. So um, right. I like that approach. I appreciate you guys, the way that you guys work. There's um, yeah, one more thing I'd like to add there. If that's yeah, okay. yeah, go ahead. The, the most disheartening thing is that when you watch the human potential side of your work, come alive and people really get inspired, really get passion and passion. I'll give you one quick example. We were dealing with a major pharmaceutical company that had come up with an eczema care system. And I took a 60 year old chemist who was working on the formulation into the homes of three eczema sufferers. And he heard their stories about how they would put Clorox in their bathtub and nobody understands the living hell of their skin. And when they go out on vacation and stay in the hotel room, their families don't even understand how isolating it is. So after that third interview, we were back in the car and he started crying. And I said, what's wrong? He said, I feel like I've wasted my whole career. Before it was always about the formulation, but now I'm solving a real problem for these real people. And he mentioned those three women's names. It happened to be three women. And that happens again and again and again, where someone gets really inspired, they start to really embody these methods and they get this sense of mission and then they just get it bludgeoned out of them by the corporation. <laughs> so um, yeah. it's wonderful when they're able to exercise those muscles to create value for the company. Um, but in some points where they just get really, really inspired and motivated and then it's uh, business as usual and um, that can be very disheartening. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so let's talk about, um, you know, this concept of business agility and innovation. So, you know, a lot of people think of those in different ways. How do you think about innovation and, you know, how it's used today to drive value forward in businesses? Um, innovation to me is a set of methods that, create net new organic value for a firm, right? And it doesn't matter which methodology you're using. You can use lean innovation, you can use jobs to be done, you can use design thinking, uh, you can use the old Stratagos methods, right? And then there are other methods out there, the SIT method and others. Um, But the objective is all the same, which is competitive advantage, differentiation, and helping to understand that you're bringing something that works for the tested wants, needs, and desires of your audience. So you're not, A, creating waste, um, just more noise in the market that's gonna end up in a landfill or on the shelves of big lots, which is worse than death, right? 
or right. um, and, and software has its own weird halls of Valhalla like that as well, <laughs> right? Where things right. just don't get launched or they get, you know, they just fail very, very quickly. And, um, but the interesting thing about it, and this is the cross section, the intersection of business agility and innovation is that in order to get that net new value, you have to break the old industrial age paradigm of doing business, right? So you can throw out your business case. You've never read a bad business case. They're like a testimonial. You've got to test and learn real quickly. You've got to get proof of concept and different proof points again and again and again by doing sprints, by doing larger tests, which you know, call those epics, whatever you want to call them. Um, but you also have to change the mindsets and behaviors and practices of the organization itself. And that's where it dovetails yeah. nicely with business agility, giving them some set methods to begin to change the muscle memory of the place, which is the culture. Right, right, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so let's look to kind of, you know, the current climate. So right now we're dealing with a number of things. So there's this uh, COVID-19 pandemic that's going on, and there's this um, massive social justice movement that's been sparked off. Um, and so there's just tons of change and volatility in the marketplace. So how do you think that amount of volatility and change in the environment is affecting the way organizations think about innovation right now? It's really interesting uh, to go case by case with a response. But in general, okay. it's either paralyzing and freezing innovation or it's accelerating change. And in many cases, especially with business agility and transformations, it's a great accelerant. You know, um, one of our clients is a large fundraising organization that had many field events. And overnight, they have to now create meaningful digital experiences to try to have their revenue be similar to what it was because 30,000 events just got canceled, right? What are you gonna do? So it's wow. forced them to be wildly creative and to tap inner resources and change momentum that they didn't know that they had, right? And many right. other companies are just doing the same thing that happened during the Great Recession. They're battening down the hatch, they got a little PPP money, and they're just sitting and waiting it out and not investing in change, you know? And um, what I would like to say is that fortune does favor the bold and those who are out getting insights right now, figuring out where things are going to settle, future casting on how they're going to settle, and positioning their company in many ways to prosper in the emerging world are going to do much better. That's the lesson from the Great Recession. But then you're also seeing a great birth of um, typical companies that would not make a political stand become a values-based company and put their values on their sleeves. So the whole movement of conscious capitalism is really taking place because of all the activism and um, everything else that's happening. And that's been really interesting and polarizing on some levels, but yeah. necessary to see if indeed, if Citizens United treats corporations as people, to see corporations have conscience um, makes them interesting as social beings, right? It's this new phenomenon that we've never really thought about before. Okay. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's been a long time coming. I think there's been kind of this, you know, s- slow ripple effect that we've seen happening. And just with some of the events that have happened this year, I think that's turned into kind of a tidal wave. Um, and it's great to see those uh, more companies starting to adopt that this idea that they need to have a conscious and they need to be uh, not only uh, doing business, but also trying to further humanity in some way. Right. And there's a, yeah, again, if you look back at the whole uh, studies of conscious capitalism, there's the great formal study by Raj Sisodio called Firms of Endearment. It just had a 10-year anniversary. It was the longest longitudinal study of companies that were value-based um, in history, and they outperform pure profit mode of companies 10 to 1. And you're looking at companies like Starbucks and... Uh, Patagonia and Whole Foods, yeah. right? Companies like that. But it's a great study. But now to see more mainline companies such as AT&T to fall uh, into that model is really interesting. Because if you go back to the roots of capitalism, I know I'm geeking out here, but it's important. Adam yeah, Smith good. wrote two books, right? And one that we all know, The Wealth of Nations, is about the shareholder only value profits at any price masculine essence of doing business but his second book was about the more classically archetypally maternal about how organizations corporations are just corpus made of people and Mm -hmm. that they need to take care of the people and it almost talks about concentric circles of care and we leave that out in the yeah. Industrial Revolution and in any, in any MBA school, nobody reads that book, right? They only right, read right. the greedy one, right? right? And so to see this rebirth of conscience in business is a um, very good thing, which gets to one last point I want to make about your question before. You talked about business agility and innovation. And I'm convinced that we are moving away from the world that just objectifies people into two dimensions, consumer or customer, B2C, B2B, and um, looks at them more as human. And the companies that are doing really well have these values, but then they use these methods to understand what's really needed, even what's not unspoken. And so they place a higher value about the things they're creating in finding the areas to uh, grow real value and becomes almost a marriage of the community with the people they're serving. Um, and they're certainly bringing their best to that marriage versus just trying to sell more stuff to more people, which is the old paradigm. Right, yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I think that, um, I, th- I think I found that that approach helps people to not only just understand their customers, but relate to them also. And I think, um, you know, what, what I kind of have observed, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, is that, you know, over the last maybe decade or so, I think people have, you know, people have always been a little disillusioned with the, with the public sector. Um, but I think people have started to realize that at least not all problems can be solved by the public sector, by the, you know, big government and private institutions are a lot better equipped and able to solve some of these problems. So if you look at some of the contact tracing apps that uh, Google and Apple are putting out, uh, those those are put out much more quickly than anything that the government would have been able to put together. And so I think people are starting to realize that some of these societal problems that we have, it's private industry that's best equipped to handle those. And people have decided to start voting with their dollars, right? So it's not just that treating people well within your organization is good for the organization, but also having a conscious as an organization shows your customers who you are. And that's beneficial, not only, you know, 
just for the good of the company, but also financially. Uh, have you seen anything, uh, anything similar to that? Or what are your oh, thoughts? Yeah. Um, I share your sensibilities very much. Um, I don't know if I have much to add there. Um, okay. You said it very well. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Yeah. It's um, all over the headlines. I mean, just look at what Facebook just took off all a lot of right. ads right now. Uh, what Google's doing the, the walkout at Microsoft over the government contracts. I mean, you, if anybody's interested, you could just you could just go and do it some kind of search. But yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you talked about, you know, different methods that you guys have used within your company and different ways that you can do innovation and you know, in thinking about getting to know your customer, I know I've been a part of one of your design thinking boot camps, which is phenomenal. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how those work and how you guys got started and, and what the goal is uh, uh, when you do those with organizations. Sure. So the best advice I can give anybody in a non-pandemic state is to leave your computer and get out and walk out of your building, right? And if you really want to create something of new value for people, your head is the least important thing. Your ears are the most important. So go where they shop, go where they hang out, go where they relieve stress, go hang out. You've not really lived until you've been kicked out of a Home Depot or Kroger or, <laughs> uh, you know, for hanging out there so long and asking people questions. Um, but in the virtual world, it's a little different. Um, okay. But it's important for people to, we, we talked a lot about this change with business agility and innovation. And it's one thing to talk about it and put metrics about it and say, hey, we're going to innovate. But it's another to actually carve out time and be intentional to work on these methods and master them and learn them and then repeat them. And so we created our boot camps for several reasons. The first was to build up the muscle memory inside organizations so the old habits and the old muscles didn't take back over, right? Okay. Um, and so when we do private boot camps, we want people to truly empathize with the people for whom they're creating, first part. Before you start creating solutions, before you test your prototypes, before you come up with any socialization plans of them, right? That's going to be very, very important. But then it's also a way to build community. When we originally started the Memphis Innovation Bootcamp, we started it with our colleagues at Merck Healthcare, FedEx, International Paper, and the University of Memphis. And what we wanted to do was just broaden the sense of community of innovators and get to know one another. And so we made a call, say, hey, we We've gotten all the materials from Stanford's D school. They came out and gave us, we put a Memphis twist to it where we're going to work on a social problem with all these corporate innovators Why we're teaching the methods, but then more importantly, um, building community. And so a lot of the open call boot camps then are really about building that community while teaching the methods to people out there who are doing it every day. And we've seen so many cross-pollinizations from our nine years of the public boot camp. But more and more, we find that companies want to do private boot camps, and they'll do the same thing, but in a different manner, meaning they'll take people from different departments. And as disparate as HR, we bring in the controller, we'll bring in some people from brand, from product, some engineers, and, and who have really never met. They may have seen each other in the break rooms. And they'll get to know each other really deeply and 
realize that everybody has a different lens and different aptitude for solving problems that we solve them better altogether, getting to one of the soft skills that we teach, which is radical collaboration. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, I know the experience I had was amazing and I love the way that you guys use that to, uh, at least with the public boot camps, you guys use those to try to affect social change while mm -hmm. teaching people those methods and do some good in the community. So, uh, you know, somebody who loves the city of Memphis, uh, I really appreciate that you guys take that approach. Um, you mentioned in there that it's a that kind of uh, approach or that kind of method is really best in this kind of non-pandemic environment where you can get out and uh, talk to people and interact and engage with yeah. them in that way. Um, and I know you guys have something called Sprout now that I think yeah. is geared towards trying to do the same thing in our new environment. Can you tell us about That's that right. a little bit? Sure. So at the Southern Growth Studio, we have an ethnographic department, which means we have some business anthropologists on staff. And for our insights work and our innovation work, um, these deep qualitative insights are the bedrock of everything that we do. And it helps us reframe problems, really understand the people for whom we're, we're, we're creating new solutions and creating value. But we found with the pandemic that our best advice, which is leave the building, can't really, isn't safe. And so right, we right. had to come up with a way that was really easy for them to get field and market insights and inexpensive. So we developed Sprout as a way to go and do, we'll just call it quick and dirty qualitative research. So in, in less than a week, we'll recruit the right people, we'll have different virtual conversations with them. We'll even give them exercises and homework. Let's just say it's something around a container company. This was one of our clients who came and did Sprout. We mailed them different types of containers and we also had them take their tablets, phones, or computers into their place where the containers that they reuse and store versus the one that they throw away or recycle. So we okay. come up with the right exercises for them to give meaning to the project, to see what the ritual use is for these things. And so the, okay. the last thing I'll say about Sprout, there, there's a lot, many, many data points to back this up. There's an MIT article that if you're doing this kind of qualitative research, it is best to just use a really small sample size and how a small sample size of two to 12 um, is much more important than rethinking from a statistically relevant quant kind of view, right? And right. one example I'll give from that goes from the annals of innovation, and that was Procter & Gamble. All their data told them from surveys that people, especially women, said they mopped twice a week and that they wanted a very concentrated mopping fluid. And so they spent about $120 million and came up with what the people wanted according to the business case and research. <laughs> and it was a right. flop, right? And so it was off the shelves in six weeks. People lost their careers. Many people were fired. And so instead they used a firm like ours in the Boston area only and went into just a handful of homes and saw that people lied on the surveys. They don't really mock. <laughs> twice right. a week, right? They're left. And once they had them said, show me, this is why we get out of the building. Right. The process of mopping, they heard the sighs and the groans and the, oh, and they had to go to scary places 
like spider closets and <laughs> garages and um, all kind of, to get them off. Then you heard, oh, my back. And, you know, I really hate this. I've got a confession to make. And so they were able to follow this whole process really quickly, come up with some cheap and dirty and quick prototypes, affectionately mm -hmm. known as a diaper on a stick. Okay. And within six weeks, they had a billion dollar franchise known as Swiffer on their hands, right? Right. And that's the power of this work and sort of the seeds that something like Sprout could give you. If you're just going to sit back passively at your computer, at your desk, and follow what somebody says on a survey, you might create more stuff the world doesn't need. But if you're able to go in their homes, even virtually, and into their hearts and into their heads and into their feelings, that's the currency. Find out where they're frustrated and when their needs aren't met. Then you right. can create something of real value. So Sprout's a quick and dirty way to do that. Okay. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's really useful for people because I do think, you know, going back to, you know, my, my inspiration that, that that story makes me think of is, you know, some of the stuff in the lean startup community where they say, you know, you can take all the customer surveys you want about your product, but until you can at least get one customer to pay you for it, it's not a product, right? That's not a good that's idea. Right. You haven't validated the idea at all. Um, and so actually getting that, uh, real life in-person validation through the experience of your customers is great. And I think it's great that you guys have a product now that lets people do that, even though we can't go out and interact the way that we would really like to. Right. Um, so it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so I, you know, I know you and I are both, uh, you know, small business owners, but we work with larger organizations for the most part. Um, but there are a lot of, you know, uh, small business owners or people in small businesses that are looking for help in innovating right now. So what is, what is some advice that you would give to other small business owners around how they can do innovation in a time like this when they might be just struggling to survive? Um, I would say it's a great time to do it and just carve out a little bit of time, a few hours for a team at a certain day of the week where they can follow one of the innovation methods and, mm -hmm. and follow through and just recruit friends and family, right? It's no different than um, doing user research and that great book called Don't Make Me Think by Steve Klug, right? He said, <laughs> back then he said, look, just use friends and family, take them a six pack, have them look at, have them look at a hand-drawn wireframe. It's right. the same thing with a product, a service, a solution, or just figuring out their frustration. You know, start close to home. And then if you're recruiting for something that's very specific or specialized, you still have a network with whom you could do the first te batch test and you need to do another test. So break it down into manageable size chunks, recruit easily, and follow the process, right? There's so much on the internet about all the innovation methodologies. But I would say intentional just to see through the process follow the process and invest the time because you have it now where, where in many cases you don't, right? Right. You're just right. staying at home and trying to force new business, right? Is not going to change anything. But if you made your offering better, that might change everything. Right. Right. So are there things that you guys are doing internally at Southern growth studio right now that, um, that were kind of spurred by uh, some of the things that are going on that you're using to increase your resilience or your innovative uh, powers just within your own organization? 
Uh, yes. So we take some of our medicine. We, we do some exercises weekly on some of our, our culture calls and status calls. As well, the way that we've responded, we've challenged ourselves, and that was the birth of Sprout, to try to find uh, um, one particular new product offering that we could offer to the market. But then we've had to be completely adaptive. So I'll just give you a snapshot, and I'll be completely transparent. March 12th, March, I guess, 13th, that Monday, mm -hmm. every contract we had was canceled. Every verbal proposal we had was held up. We, okay. it looked very, very bleak. You know, we lost about half a million dollars in one day. It was, uh, we didn't know what we were going to do. Right. We had a little reserve, um, but not much. We're a small business. Um, and we saw that many of our traditional corporate clients were in either that freeze mode or, huh, this crisis could be an opportunity mode. So the ones that we quickly discern were in the freeze mode, we just left them there frozen and shocked, right? And we went and sold to the higher ground of those of the willing, right? We okay. always say innovation and probably business agility is a lot like love. People have to yeah, be sure. willing and capable, right? And right. so we went to the willing um, first. Okay. But then we started getting calls crazily from um, a lot of funded startups who what we found, and this was just dumb luck, was that the PE space and the startup space is using this to their great advantage. And okay. uh, so we have shifted some of our whole business mix to work with funded high growth startups and started work with them in a way that's mutually advantageous. And from our perspective, we're on an equity, minority equity track and we get a reduced fee for this work while helping them grow and reach all these proof points to get to the next tranche of investment. Um, okay. And so that has been really interesting. And because we started at the height of the recession, we know this, and this has always been in our business plan. I mean, at the Southern Growth Studio, our, we pay our rent by having a consultancy, but we know that we're going to create wealth that would then become a generator for other wealth and other businesses by partnering with startups and taking equity seats and, and doing that. So it is really okay. um, catapulted that vision uh, into action very, very okay. quickly. But we're smart enough to read what was happening and seize it and find more of it, right? Smart like a hog finding truffles that is <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's it sounds like a great story about you know pivoting in the marketplace finding right. a new market for the products that you offer it kind of makes me it, it kind of sounds like what you're saying is you guys are you know in, in the startup or in the accelerator space you often hear about people uh talking about startups needing adult supervision because often right. they don't have the process and the discipline to do a lot of these things it sounds like you guys are kind of acting as that adult supervision from a like a product development standpoint is that so is well that so we actually about? will play several roles at several okay. of these companies and that includes uh, a cfo role right fractional cfo fractional cmo fractional strategy officer and fractional innovation department all of those okay companies. wow yeah wow that sounds really cool it's fun yeah yeah um so, you know, back on the, uh, you know, talking about the larger organizations that, you know, I think you probably traditionally have done more work with and, um, and that are maybe coming out of that freeze mode now and are maybe starting to see that there are some opportunities and want to 
talk about innovation within their organizations. Um, what are the, you know, maybe just the top three things you think leaders should be prioritizing in order to get that ball rolling? Um, well, one, and this comes from Frederick Puff, the doctor of innovation, the, the chief innovation officer at Google. You first have to have the psychological safety of your team in mind. Okay. So in our context, that means it's up to, you either need to empower the individual performers or have the managers make sure that no one's going to um, be in a situation that's going to compromise them getting the virus, right? Just bluntly. Right. Yeah, sure. But then also there needs to be the trust and the runway to actually iterate, innovate, experiment while they're creating value without being judged too harshly. So that's the first thing is psychological safety in all of its connotations. Okay. Um, the second thing would be knowing that it's a good time to get in adjacent spaces and there are emerging spaces We've had a few of our clients who traditional manufacturers, HVAC, water heating, that kind of thing, who are now moving into safety and sanitation uh, as the world reopens, right? Um, right. And they, that, that, those are some of the, the companies that, again, the, they saw that the crisis was an accelerator for change, and they want to be positioned to take uh, and own some aspect of it. And so they the point I'm making here is that they have to have some vision about some adjacent markets into which they can play and experiment. So psychological safety, some at least notion of which adjacent markets we can experiment in. And then thirdly, it's just time and budget. I would say take a small team if you haven't done this before. Make sure they're working with someone like you or someone like us who's moderating and leading them through the process and if you don't, they're just going to go to their default decision-making, default stakeholders, and default ways of doing yeah. business and not do this genuinely and well, ultimately not creating new value for the organization or the plan. Yeah, I think, you know, you know I'm biased, of course, and, and you know, as are you, but, you know, I think having a guide really helps, um, especially when you're introducing concepts and methods that, you know, the people that are in your organization probably aren't familiar with, right? Um, but also, I like the idea that you talk about small teams uh, in, in the space that you work in, because, you know, often on my side, uh, I work with organizations that really want to do these large, big bang transformations and change the organization overnight. And there are some success stories out there of uh, people that have been able to do that. I think it's possible those are a little padded, um, but I've found a lot more success in starting with a small team and then developing that muscle memory, developing that discipline within the organization and scaling it from there. Um, right. How does that work on the innovation side when you talk about design thinking methods and things like that? So once you've kind of proven that there's benefit in those methods to the organization, yep. how do you guys work on scaling that out to the rest of the organization? So that's, and that's the way we usually work is that we'll first meet with the senior leadership and they say, we want everybody to innovate. It's everybody's job. <laughs> right. We're like, okay, are you sure you know what you're asking for? Yeah. But why don't we prove that theory? Give me a small multidisciplinary team, mm -hmm. handpick five people, and then we'll take them on a journey. You'll have a portfolio of option value, short, medium, long-term value that you can figure out if you want to um, take this stuff to market, right? We'll take some things to market as part of the process. So give me two, three months, uh, a fourth of a percent of these people's time. 
and and then we come back with the concepts have the people talk about the experience how it's like working in this context compared to the, their old world and what soft skills um, they've learned what methods they've learned have they utilized them how they could take them back to their normal position but then we'll ask for money to go out and commercialize a few of the pieces um, okay. and then the senior leaders can see the camaraderie that's happening, the inspiration that's happening, and the value that's created. And they have to seriously take inventory and ask themselves, this seems, this is an interesting process, but that's not the way we do business. How disruptive is this gonna be? On the other hand, how valuable can it be? How can we most prudently scale it out um, and think through and maybe work with eight small groups at once and just change it from the inside out. I will say, Stephen, that one piece that makes the Southern Growth Studio unique is that doing those small experiments, you figure out what their cultures will accept. And that means yeah. what risk tolerance they have, what kind of methods will be accepted there and which won't, what level of fidelity of prototypes, are everything gets exposed just by doing these small tests. And if you try to do a, what's called a meta transformation, the whole okay. organization at once, without testing it first and seeing the response to it, you don't know what orthodoxies are gonna rear up and what resistance pockets are gonna start a revolt, right? It's a very yeah, dangerous, absolutely. dangerous yeah. situation to ask for something like that. Now, if you're in crisis and need transformation, that's a different scenario. But right, if you're right. doing well and you want to transform just to do better, my approach would be gradual and run it as a series of tests and scale it out once you reach certain points of proof points in an innovation strategy. And that includes revenue and soft skills like collaboration. Right. Yeah, I, I often talk about it with customers as, you know, we the the larger the transformation or the larger scale we try to go to at first, the more pain we're going to cause in the organization too, because yeah. um, of those orthodoxies and those things that rear up that we don't know about. Yeah. Um, and I also find that those smaller successes uh, kind of create a snowball effect in the organization where you start to have, uh, you know, this, this uh, volunteer transformation, right? You start to have people in the organization raise their hands to try to be a part of what you're doing. Do you guys see a yeah. lot of that too? We do, uh, but it's really only from about, 10 to 15 percent of the people usually that are there <laughs> and then you know the other piece is that without really thinking through a whole change management plan and thinking through all of the organizational dynamics of transformation here right. um it can really wreak a lot of havoc and be very disruptive you know i believe me i love the symbolism of the phoenix and i think that organizations rise fall need to be redeemed and reborn sure, right sure. And, but but consciously right with a process right. that's really the only way to do it with a guide who has experience doing that okay yeah yeah I, I completely agree and you talked a little bit about um creating inspiration inside of some of those organizations and i know you've always got all these great ideas that come from all over the place. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, where do you find inspiration for some of the stuff that you're working on? So first I'm going to give you an example of some of these inspiration proof points at a client, right? Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, 
And we like to have show uh, a lot of the human to human revolution of our work, right? And so we were working with a large pharma company and a couple of their smaller over-the-counter products. But we wanted to be able to socialize that journey. So in the break room and several very highly trafficked hallways, we created big posters of the people with whom we'd done empathy. And we talked about their frustration shopping for these types of items in their category and what they really want and what they seek and the kind of relationship they want with a brand. And we made these big posters and just one, one, one example of storytelling. Okay. And we knew that the revolution was complete and we could scale it up more when the president of that whole division globally in her town hall speech quoted somebody, one of the people in the poster by first name, Sarah. We're doing this for people like Sarah. We're right. figuring out what the needs are of people. We're people first, right? right. Um, and I endorse this. And that was a great moment. But find little ways to tell the story and to socialize these things and, and get it out there as, as part of meaning making, which is the only way you're really going to change culture. Right. Um, right. Um, first off, but I've always been wildly curious and, you know, I take inspiration wherever I can get it. I'm no dummy. <laughs> so, <laughs> And you, you, you had asked me before we started recording, you know, what books are you reading? And I typically read about 30 to 35 books at a time. And wow. you, I'm some of them slowly, you know, it's not sure, sure. strange category, science fiction, metaphysics, Persian poetry from the 13th century, American history from the 40s. You know, I just, I try not to just read basic business books. I know that if I show up to a meeting and everybody's read, I'll just pick on Collins, right? And everyone's mm -hmm. quoting good to great. It's a very shallow brain pool there, right? But okay. if someone throws in a quote from Dune, right? Wow, that's something we can play with or something, <laughs> you know, it's not just the right. flywheel. It's not just a mathematical equation because ultimately the things that you and I are talking about transformation, agility, innovation. You have to throw out sort of the set systems for how you do it, you know, and you've got to think unthinkable thoughts. And in that universe, one plus one doesn't always equal two, and you don't even do math the same way. It may not even be, you may think it's a math problem, but it could be a problem of relating, right? Or or acoustic physics, and that you'll have to figure your way into it. So all those things of wayfinding and nuances come in. And so um, I have to feed that fountain of curiosity all the time. And it's, it's, you know, I get it everywhere. Um, I just yeah. tried to be open to that my whole life. It's yeah, served me that. well so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, I think mean, you, you probably wouldn't believe how many people I talk to, you know, in my field and people that are coaches or innovators. And um, there's actually, that's really common. A lot of us find inspiration from all over the place because I find, um, and I don't know if this is the case with you, but I find it doesn't really, you know, I'm so passionate about what I do. It doesn't really matter what I'm looking at or reading. 
hours are or listening to music. Somewhere in the back of my subconscious, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how that can be useful in telling a story right. or in, in helping to make a metaphor. And so um, my brain is always working on making those connections. Uh, yep. And so I find, you know, the, the, the more far and wide I look for those connections, the better examples I find. And you don't know how freeing it is for the people with whom we work inside corporations mm -hmm. to leave the mask of their role down and welcome all their curiosities into solving complex problems, being fully human and fully alive. It's the first yeah. time they've ever sort of thought of themselves non-categorically as an engineer inside this and just as a human, as maybe as, oh, I'm a father. I feel... So there's another story where we were doing a hackathon with a client trying to hack into a particular problem. And after going through several of the exercises and creating a lot of the things, everybody's letting their guard down. Some people were crying, um, but um, the one man had written a, a concept and drawn something called the Dragon Slayer. And it's these little moments that, that he pulled out a beanie baby out of his travel sack. And this was okay. a hard-nosed engineer. I think he used to be in the military. <laughs> and we're like, wow, that's... And he started crying. He's like, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like I had to name it this. My daughter, who's four, always gives me one of her beanie babies for safety every time I uh. travel. <laughs> He's not normally allowed those kinds of moments being right. a company man, right? Yeah, but the yeah. more you allow people to be fully expressive, the more they're going to create value on your behalf. That's the lesson we're learning. That's the human to human revolution we're in. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And, you know, it goes back to, we were talking a little bit uh, earlier about this, uh, you know, conscientious capitalism, right? And uh, I think a big part of that is having diversity in, uh, in your organization in order to create diversity of thought, right? But um, I think without that, uh, you know, the way you talked about was letting people pull off their masks and be their own unique selves. Uh, an organization, right? We can we can have all the diversity initiatives that we want, uh, but if we're not allowing people to bring their real authentic selves into the organization, we're not actually they're not actually contributing in that way and creating that ver diverse pool of thought. What are your thoughts on that? Right. My thoughts are: I would love to see a commission study of organizations that actually let because it sounds so soft and and right and, and, and <laughs> but I've seen millions of dollars created on behalf of our clients when they let people be people, right? right. Um, yeah. And I would love to see a formal study there. That's my first thought, just so I can yeah. talk to the CFO types and say, well, here's the math behind it. Now, you unbutton your shirt collar. Let's, uh, tell me the time you went dancing with your wife, you know? So, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, okay, so I, I know we're about out of time, so I just wanted to give you a chance. Is there anything that uh, anything else that you wanted to let people know about or maybe, you know, a way to contact you as people have questions or anything like that? Sure. Well, anyone is always welcome to email me at michael at southerngrowthstudio.com or find me on LinkedIn. Um, and if you have a question about insights, innovation, or strategy, ask me. And don't, I'm not going to try to sell you, um, but I, I'm here as part of the community and as part of what I see as this revolution of innovation into being uh, the best humans we can be on the planet. So I'm here to help. Please reach out, anybody. Stephen, thank you for everything you do, and thank you for having me today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for being here. Um, I, I think our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of everything you said. You always have such wise words, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today. So thank you for taking the time to do it. Thank you. I'm honored. Thanks again. 
Hi there, this is Stephen Boyles again. Just wanted to say thank you for joining us on this episode of the 330 Forecast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review for us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. And make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. If you're interested in talking more about business agility and innovation, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at 334group, or find us on the web at the334group.com. Have a great day.